You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, you can be seated. If you've got kids up to second grade that you are putting in one of the classes back there, you can uh, lead them to the back of the room and their teachers will take them and uh, get them in their classes. They'll continue to worship, study God's Word. And uh, for us in this room, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 28. So continuing in our series in Genesis, I just want to remind you um, up to this point uh, where we've been, uh, I won't give every detail, of course, because it's taken us all of this year to get here so far. But uh, I will tell you uh, just some, some major points that, uh, that I think we need to stay connected with as we continue to go through Genesis and see how God is unfolding his plan, um, working his way towards uh, the giving of the law and working his way towards uh, the kings and the prophets and, and, of course, towards Jesus who would fulfill all of those things. Um, let's remember that uh, we have seen here in Genesis, we've seen the account of God creating everything that exists outside of himself. So he has existed, of course, eternally as triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and just out of his, his own power and creativity and will, he spoke the universe into existence And being the creator, he has authority and sovereignty over everything that is. And he wields that sovereignty and authority with grace and with power and with love and with holiness. And in his holiness, creating people to dwell in this creation of his, uh, he um, lived with them in a perfect relationship where sin wasn't a thing that was. But human beings being fallible, being limited, and being unlike God, and in the fact that he is perfect and we are not, they fell to temptation. Satan tempted them, and they did something that God had told them explicitly not to do because they wanted to be like him. And let's remember, as we journey through Genesis, people want to be like God, not in his character, but in his sovereignty and authority that only he possesses as creator. And they want that sovereignty and authority because they want to be a law unto themselves. And this infection of sin that, that creates this desire in us, this evil desire to rule ourselves and be out from under the rule of God is still something that we're plagued by today. So human beings living in the world, fallen, sinful, under a curse of death, not only physical death, but spiritual death, are now navigating life in toil and hardship and in conflict. God is still very much with them. God loves people. God calls people. God is uh, saving people, revealing himself to people, and, and he's doing it in the way then that he is doing it now. It's an act of grace that opens the heart to trust God, to believe God, and that that belief is counted to them as righteousness. 
We saw this over and over again as we journeyed with Abraham. We have, of course, uh, the New Testament speaking about Abraham in several places that his righteousness was credited to him as a gift from God because of his faith. So we know that God has always called and saved people in, in one way as an act of grace. And then Abraham being called out by God, being set apart by him, was made the patriarch, the father of a great nation that we still have not seen yet. We're still looking at from afar and getting some tastes of as Abraham's son Isaac is born miraculously in Abraham's old age. And then Isaac has a son. Again, Isaac's wife was barren and God opened her womb just the way Isaac came to life. So his sons Jacob and Esau came uh, miraculously. And then we see that Jacob and Esau, very different people, even from birth, very different, Esau being the older, Jacob being the younger, that God spoke to their mother, Rebekah, and said that it was the older who was going to serve the younger, that God was going to do something unexpected, something unorthodox, and he was going to have Esau serve Jacob, the younger brother. Esau, of course, didn't like this, didn't want this, and yet in his foolishness and his sinfulness, not being a man of God, but as the scriptures uh, say in the New Testament, speaking back to of him and filling in our understanding of Esau, he was a sexually immoral and an unholy man. He was not a man who loved and followed God and cherished righteousness. And so after being cheated by Jacob, who also was a sinful man, but in a different way, in a more devious, in a more thoughtful, conniving kind of way, he was able to uh, basically trick or steal uh, both Esau's birthright and the blessing that he would have received as the firstborn. And after doing this to Esau, we see Jacob sent away, sent away by his mother because Esau wanted to murder him. So then we pick up this story of God continuing only by his grace, not because of anyone's merit or goodness on their own, obviously at this point, right? A really dysfunctional family that we see God creating a special family line by which he's going to bless the whole earth and bring salvation. We pick up in chapter 28. So just as we normally do, I'll read this uh, chapter Out loud, if you would follow along, and then we'll stop and pray for some help. Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. 
So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will be, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, I will, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for gathering us together in this place to worship you, to speak truth of you and to hear truth of you, to sing truth to you and pray in the truth. Oh, we realize that it's by your spirit that we have all gathered in this place that providentially you have brought us here, each one of us, for a purpose that you have. Lord, I'm just so aware right now that our lives each present so many challenges, so many stumbling blocks, so many temptations, fears, And we all are not facing the same things this morning. But help us, Lord, to be even more aware that you are presiding in love and in authority over us. That we're yours. That you love us. That you're perfect in all your ways toward us. Please wield your word 
powerfully this morning. Please cause the things that are said in these next few minutes to be from you, not just mere human thoughts and words and ideas, Lord. Let them be yours and let our ears be open and our hearts be open and soft and humble toward you so that we could be transformed by your word, by your spirit, so that we could be made more like Jesus, so that we could be made more faithful, more holy, more devoted, lovers of the truth. Please help us, God. By your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's always our prayer to be changed by God's word, to come to it with humility. And this morning, I'm encouraged about where we are. Uh, I can't explain to you exactly why. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why in my own heart, but I feel like this is such a good place for us to be this morning with Jacob, encountering the Lord before we get to this vision, which is such an exciting thing to explore and to study and, and to believe and, and enjoy, I think due diligence requires us to really be with Jacob on his journey. So let's not jump ahead of where Jacob is and, and start to experience this vision um, as people who are gathered together in this place right now, let's experience this vision in the same kind of context and mindset that Jacob would have had, which would have been a, a mindset and a heart set of complete surprise. Why would he have been so surprised by this? Well, we have to kind of catch up to him if we're going to understand that. So let's, let's establish some things. First, let's establish, as God had already established by this point, that Jacob is clearly chosen by God. Clearly chosen by God. God has made that clear. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke blessings over Jacob through Isaac. Jacob clearly belongs to God at this point. And, and if for us to not embrace that idea is to be working against God. If we see Jacob as his life is somehow up in the air, somehow up for grabs, that God may or may not get his way with Jacob, then we're, we're working against something that God has established in his grace he has determined that he is going to work through and use and establish Jacob for purposes that are greater than Jacob. So let's embrace that idea. Jacob is chosen by God, but we cannot say at this point that Jacob is a man of God or that he loves God or that he even knows God or that he even knows very much about God. We can't really say with any kind of certainty any of these things. In fact, we can say with certainty that Jacob is not a man of God, that he's not walking with God or loves God. Even though he's been surrounded by the grace and mercy of God, he acts like a person who doesn't even know or considers that God exists. He's living his life kind of independent of that truth. 
which I know, I mean, we're all very familiar with. I'm very familiar with that feeling of getting to the end of a day and realizing I lived it as if God didn't exist. You understand that, what I mean? I'm not alone in that, right? You know what it's like to get to the end of a day and be like, oh, right, God. And that can be a discouraging feeling because we want to live our days in light of God and aware of God and walking with God, but it's not beyond God and his grace and in his power toward us to capture our attention at any moment. So we can relate with Jacob in that way, that he is surrounded by God, yet just unaware of him. That's it's not an unhuman thing. Now let's keep on realizing where Jacob is. At this point, being sent out by his parents because of fear for his life, he's on a journey back to the country where Abraham had come from in the very beginning when God called him and said, go to a land that I'll show you and I'm going to make a great nation of you and all the earth is going to be blessed through you, through your offspring. Jacob's now being sent all the way back to that land, which is over a 500-mile journey on foot through a desert, through a wasteland. He is going back to that place, hated by his brother who wants to murder him. He's wifeless. He's childless. He's friendless. As far as he knows, he's godless. And he's laying outside with his head on a rock trying to get some sleep before he has to journey on the next day, walking in the heat in the blazing sun through the Middle East. I wonder how many of his meals were sand. So when we start this passage, and we're reading through verses 1 through 9, and we get this account of Isaac sending him away, and, and a final blessing before he puts him on the road, and we get this, this account, verses 6 through 9, of Esau still kind of pining for approval from his father, not looking to the Lord for that approval, but just to Isaac. He just wants to be back in some good standing again, and he hasn't understood to this point anything of the things of God or what his father's all about or the things that have even been promised to his father. He's just trying every day to do something that's not completely dumb. So he's got wives already, and he's got Canaanite wives, and he's immoral, and he's unholy in his relationship with these women. But he sees, oh, they've sent my brother back to this other land to try to find women that we're related to. So we're trying to find, we're trying to find blood relatives. Okay, so then let me go and find a wife from Ishmael. It's like even when he kind of thinks he knows the right thing to do, he ends up finding a wife from Ishmael. It just, it's like he just can't, he can't get it. And the thing that's happening here is that uh, he is trying of his own accord, his own strength and in his own wisdom to do things that are right and that are righteous. And he's obviously misguided. And so he's always going to hit the mark or miss the mark. And one of the things, of course, that is in Esau's heart, aside from just finding a wife that won't upset his parents is that he is stored up in his heart hatred and bitterness towards Jacob, and which in a natural sense is very understandable because Jacob has been so terrible to him as a brother. 
and has left him blessingless and birthrightless, and he wants to murder him. He wants to kill him. Now, listen, to my knowledge, there hasn't ever been or is someone who, out there who wants to murder me. I mean, maybe just in their heart, but not actually. Or maybe figuratively, like, I could kill you, but they don't really mean it. Maybe some of you are, maybe some of you can identify more with Jacob having someone hate you with such an intense kind of hatred that if they could end your life, if they could make the earth rid of you, they absolutely would seize the opportunity and they would have joy in doing it to murder you. I don't know exactly what that feels like, but I can imagine that Jacob is not just kind of making his way toward Paddan Aram to find a wife with a lot of anticipation and excitement. Oh, I hope she's pretty. But really, he is on the run. For all he knows, with such an intense hatred, murderous kind of hatred, right there in, in the tents of his home, for all he knows, Esau is on his heels as he journeys. So he is wandering, he's alone, he's in pain, he's isolated in more ways than just physical, and in this desert, he lays his head down on a rock, hoping to wake up and continue his journey. So when we start reading verse 12 here, don't imagine that God is coming to meet with someone who is just nailing it, just crushing life. He just, like he just wakes up every morning, spends an hour meditating on all the promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac and these blessings about, about what God is going to do in his life and how God's going to be glorified by that. And he's just praying for his enemies. Lord, I know Esau wants to murder me, but please forgive him. He knows not what he does. And he just eats a balanced breakfast, some kind of whole 30 thing you could find in the desert. And, and before he even starts his day, he is just walking with intensity and passion and love for the Lord and just with joy and anticipation. No. When you start reading verse 12, understand Jacob as a lonely, scandalous sinner who is stuck trying to exalt himself not knowing God or wanting God or knowing anything of the God that his fathers walked with, but he is a man who is about himself. He's destitute. He's a coward, a liar, a thief. He's even a blasphemer. Because you remember when Isaac asked him, how is it that you hunted this game and cooked it and prepared it and brought it to me so quickly? Of course, Jacob pretending to be Esau, who's still out hunting. And he says, the Lord, your God gave me help. Now he's even making God a co-conspirator in this conspiracy to steal the blessing. What an absolute scoundrel we find in verse 12 with his head on a rock. Now let's catch up with him. Verse 12, and he dreamed. And behold, 
there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. Now in the Hebrew, when it says, and behold, and behold, and behold, there's an escalation to the language that's supposed to catch you up in this very surprising and joyful and alarming and perhaps even a scary thing as God himself in all his holiness is made manifest to a mere human being. We're supposed to be caught up in the wonder of that. Behold, and behold, and behold, And of course, the highest thing revealed is God himself standing above the scene, reigning over it in his glory and his majesty in the heavens. Now let's reattach ourselves here before we get caught up in the heavens to Jacob dreaming with his head on a rock and all of his discomfort in a desert. This God is not familiar to him. This God is not a grace that a God that he understands as a God of grace or forgiveness, a God who imputes or credits righteousness to sinners. That's not, that's not knowledge that he has of God right now. He's just aware that this is obviously the deity who reigns. This is the ruler. This is the sovereign. As he's laying here, sleeping and dreaming, these eyes of his heart opened by God, he's witnessing things that are obviously much bigger than him, things that are transcendent. As Jacob laying on the ground by himself is dreaming of these things, you imagine him laying, if you could just be there in the scene, watching him dream, you wouldn't have seen any of this. Maybe you would see his eyeballs twitching behind his eyelids. Remember that who you're talking about is a man, I think Titus 3.3 could really encapsulate the kind of man we're talking about. Paul says about himself and about all of the church, including Titus, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And it's in this state of mind and heart that Jacob experiences what is happening in his sleep. He's a sinful man. He is a sinner. But before we even get into the details of this vision, please don't miss the fact that we are all very familiar, even uncomfortably familiar with Jacob's state of mind and heart. In fact, when Paul wrote to Titus and described the state of unbelievers before the grace of God comes to them, and we see this is the kind of man Jacob was, you notice he said, for we ourselves, for we ourselves, he's he's talking about Christians, people who now are not so foolish, not so disobedient, not led astray, but led to the truth, not slaves to various passions and pleasures, but slaves to righteousness, not passing our days in malice and envy, but in contentment and in joy of the Lord, not hating others, but loving others. We know that we too ourselves were once like Jacob. And it's in that state of mind that we were all once in 
that we sometimes still stumble into when we don't walk by the Spirit, that Jacob experiences this escalating vision of glory. Isn't it astounding and so praiseworthy of the Lord that he does not wait for wayward sinners to clean themselves up to get a solid year or month or day or even hour or even millisecond behind them on their track record to prove their worth before he comes bursting onto the scene with grace. Isn't it so excellent and so praiseworthy of the Lord? That's what you're experiencing here is someone who is wayward and foolish and disobedient, not loving God but hating God, and God says, in spite of you, I come to you. This is the God who is, the God who created, the God who's real. This vision that Jacob is seeing in this dream from the Lord, I want to take you through a few points of it. Uh, but before we get to uh, just recounting the vision, I want to take you to Jacob's response. Jacob's response. Verse 18. So Jacob has dreamed this dream. I don't know how long it went on. I doubt he was really wanting to wake up. Or maybe he was so terrified he couldn't wait to. But in verse 18, it says, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. This is an uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, kind of worshipful act that wasn't just uh, a thing that was about the God of uh, Abraham and Isaac. This was something that was done among even pagan people to set up a rock as a pillar and to anoint it. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now that's the, the narrator giving you some context about where he was. Then Jacob made a vow saying, I'm so sorry, I need to take you back up to 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. There you see his surprise, his lack of awareness before God came crashing in. Verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other, this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So now what Jacob is understanding as a, as a person who's caught up in something bigger than him, bigger than his experience or bigger than his knowledge base about God, he He's saying, God has established this place geographically. He is here, so I'm going to call this the house of God like God lives here. Now, don't you see a lack of understanding about God, about God's nature, his eternality, his omnipresence, as if God is restricted to some location, God's here right now, but then later he could be over there. And he's saying, this must be the house of God. Look how he set up shop right here. He calls it house of God and he calls it the gate of heaven. Why? Because it's like heaven was open and this ladder descending with this 
angels going back and forth between it. This must be this gate of heaven that's opened up again as if there's some kind of place. He lacks understanding. But even in his misunderstanding, he's saying some things that have some real eternal worth here, some real weight to them. In fact, some things that are even fulfilled by God in a much more profound way than I think Jacob understood. He's looking at location. He's looking at geography. But God, of course, is always looking at eternity. This is the house of God, he said. Jesus said in John 2, 19, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the temple and they was even mocking him as he was being crucified. You said that you could raise the temple in three days after it being destroyed. You can't even take yourself off of the cross. But Jesus was speaking of himself. He's the temple. He's the greater temple, the place where we come to worship. Wherever he is, that's where God's presence is. He is the house of God. Jesus said in John 10, verses 7 through 9, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the gate of heaven. It's how we find our way there, and it's how we enter in. Only through him, he's the way, he's the gate of heaven. So there's things here that Jacob, even in his ignorance, was kind of prophetically exclaiming about something he didn't understand, something he's looking at and he's seeing with the eyes of his heart in this vision, but he doesn't really understand how great and glorious it is. He thinks it is a thing in a place. But if we keep on listening to Jesus we find out he is not just the fulfillment of what Jacob communicated here in his ignorance. He's also the heart of the whole vision that God was communicating. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of John and the first chapter. So if you got your Bible, go uh, all the way to the New Testament and find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And in the first chapter of John, look all the way towards the end of the chapter and what we have here, what we're entering into, uh, without giving a bunch of explanation, is that Jesus is, has met a man named Nathaniel, and, uh, and he understands who Nathaniel is and describes Nathaniel's mourning to him in kind of a miraculous way. And uh, Nathaniel, of course, is caught off guard by this. And then Jesus says in, uh, in John 1.51, Sorry, I made you get there and I forgot to. John 1.51. He says, we can pick it up in 50 for context. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, than these miracles that he's witnessed. 
Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, which is maybe in your Bible says verily, verily, you could even translate it, amen, amen, like a so be it, or this is true, listen up, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Familiar imagery, right? Angels ascending and descending on something. Let's go back. Genesis chapter 28. He dreamed and behold, there was a ladder. There was a ladder or it could also be understood as a stairway. It doesn't matter which one. It was set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And of course, the bottom of it is on the earth where Jacob is. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, there's no accident there in the imagery. It's not like Jesus went ascending and descending. I said that earlier to this guy, and I feel like I remember, I heard that somewhere before. Is that something? Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 28. He's very aware of the vision that Jacob received sleeping in that desert. And he's saying, listen, I want you to understand, I'm not just a guy, I'm not just a rabbi or a teacher. These miraculous things that you've seen, there's gonna be much greater things than that because you don't really understand yet who I am. In fact, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's referring to him himself. He's saying he is the ladder. He's saying he is the ladder. Now for us to understand him as like the house of God, like he's there, he's the place, the presence of God. For us to understand him as the gate of heaven, that he's the way in. This is familiar kind of terminology for us, but what about a ladder? A ladder that reaches from heaven all the way down to earth with angels ascending and descending on it. Why would Jesus refer to himself as this ladder or this stairway with angels ascending and descending? Here's why. In a way that Jacob did not understand, in a way that I think kind of flew over his head, Jacob experienced a prophetic vision about the Lord Jesus, and not just some characteristic or some attribute of him, but about what Jesus was coming to accomplish, about this offspring, not about the offsprings, plural, that were spoken to Abraham and Isaac and were spoken about to Jacob, but about this one singular offspring, this one person who would come and through him all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that truth would come to them, salvation would come to them about what Jesus would do. This is the vision he is receiving, a ladder with angels ascending and descending that brings a connection between heaven and earth because it is through Jesus that heaven and earth meet. It's through him that heaven and earth meet, that the grace of God is given to the world, that God's presence with his chosen people is actually experienced, that the ministry of God to humanity is unfolding, is accomplished, that these angels ascending and descending, they're doing this through Jesus. It's only through him that they can accomplish the ministry of God to humanity. It's through Jesus that the truth of God's salvation for sinners 
for lost, lonely, destitute, sinful, scandalous people that the truth can come to them, that the salvation for sinners can be exclaimed to the earth. Everything that God wants to give to humanity comes through Jesus. Jesus is this ladder. Now I'm going to ask you again to put yourself there with Jacob, to remember his state of mind, his state of heart, to remember our own weaknesses, our own failures, our limitations, our rebellion, our own sinfulness. Jacob wasn't just looking at some mystical ladder for angels. He was seeing a prophetic vision of Jesus coming to minister to sinners who were lost, broken, and alone. A ladder from heaven to a sinner in a lonely place. Now, if that doesn't bring some kind of powerful revelation to you about who Jesus is toward you, then I think there's a couple things that could be happening in your heart. If you understand that Jesus by his own mouth is a ladder, is a conduit for God's grace to come from his throne down to you exactly where you are, not after you've figured some things out because much later on from now, years from now, Jacob will be in a different place and he'll receive more commendation and he'll receive more words from God, but he'll be in a different place to receive those than he is right now. Right now, he's reprobate. Right now, he's in rebellion. He has no desire for God in this place. So if you imagine, if you imagine this conduit of grace from God, this Jesus who's come into the world to bring heaven and earth together for you, if you imagine that that has no power in your life, then here's what you're doing. One of two things. You either think you don't need that kind of grace or you think you've gone too far for that kind of grace. That there's not possibly a ladder that could reach all the way from heaven to me. There's no way. I, surely I have to be brought up to some kind of place that Jesus would be able to reach down to me, that his angels could bring truth to me, could minister to me, that God's grace could reach me. Surely I have to bring myself up to some place. If the ladder reaches to earth, I feel like I'm buried under a mountain. But please understand, there is no place that Jesus cannot reach. The reason why this vision is all the way from heaven to earth is because that is, that is an expanse that human beings can't even fathom. Where was the top? Tell me where the top was. To the moon? To the clouds? To some other galaxy? Oh, it's not a physical thing. It's about Jesus transcending on our behalf the distance that could never be covered. A distance that could never be transcended. You can't bring yourself to a place where this ladder can reach you because it's not about where you are. It's about who Jesus is. 
He's the one who brings the grace to you wherever you are, in the lowest, darkest, most evil place. He is the one who reaches you. You can't reach him. Or you may think you're not in need of that kind of grace. And I would just uh, present to you some biblical truth to convince you. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you've heard the words. Maybe it's new for you this morning. But all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And the penalty for our sin is death. And this is a universal problem for human beings. So for Jesus to be this ladder, to be this conduit of God's grace to sinners is inclusive of you if you are a human being. Now, obviously that's enough to be astounding and to make us praise God and appreciate God. But, let me go info infomercial on you here for a minute. But wait, there's more. <laughs> for three easy installments. Why are they always so easy? And why are they not payments? Why are they installments? Why well, I don't know, but I buy stuff. Okay. Notice here that Jesus is very specific, like we said, about this imagery, this language that he's using when he describes himself as this ladder, angels ascending and descending, but ascending and descending on what? On whom? On the Son of Man. So we know he's being specific already. Jesus doesn't just throw words around. He's very specific in the way he's revealing himself and the identity that he discloses to the people that he's talking to when he says, remember Genesis chapter 28? They didn't have chapters and verses, but remember Jacob's ladder. I am that ladder. I am that ladder. It's through me that God comes and speaks to the world and ministers to the world, but... He describes himself as the latter, as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And this is used 80-something times in the Gospels, this phrase, Son of Man, to describe Jesus. And uh, all but, I think, one time, it's out of Jesus' own mouth. 81 times, I think it is, Jesus describes himself as Son of Man. And this is one of those times. So now we have some kind of mixed metaphor going on with Jesus that he says, I am the ladder, and the ladder is the Son of Man. Now, Jacob at this time doesn't know who the Son of Man is. He doesn't understand this kind of language. A Son of Man would just be someone whose father is a man, a human being. But there's something about the Son of Man as a title that sets Jesus apart as something distinct, something special. He is the Son of Man, someone who's been waited on, someone who's being looked to. And this is coming from Daniel chapter 7. So again, maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not, but I'm going to take you there to Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to look at where Son of Man comes from. So please find the book of Daniel. Where'd you go, Daniel?
Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees a vision. God again revealing himself, revealing his plans. And this is what Daniel sees. Let's pick it up in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, sound familiar? And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this Son of Man in Daniel is the very same Son of Man who said, I am the latter." I am the conduit of God's grace to the world. Now, I want you to pair some things together. When you have a victorious son of man being presented to the ancient of days, having lived and been crucified and resurrected from the grave and now taken up in the clouds to meet with the ancient of days in heaven and being approved of and being commended by him as worthy You've got a combination of two things, a grace-giving conduit and an authoritative king of kings and lord of lords whose kingdom shall never pass away, whose purposes can never be thwarted. His people will always be his people and no one can take them from him. What a glorious reunion of two visions to see Jesus in all of his sovereign power and love and grace. A king, a lord with all dominion and authority making decisions about your life, about your life, you. Please don't don't just see yourself a, a faceless, nameless person in a crowd and that all these things are kind of skirting around you to other people and flying over you to other people. You personally have the son of man, Jacob's ladder, making decisions about your life in all of his grace and ministry and authority and dominion which lasts forever in a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. He loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He reigns on high for you. So now, please, go back to Genesis chapter 28. And I want you to read what the Lord says to Jacob. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Of course it did. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. We know why. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We know why. 
We know why, because Jesus is such a blessing to the nations. The good news of his gospel is saving, saving lost sinners, saving people who otherwise could not make their way to God. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring, and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. This is God speaking to a chosen, elected, loved, bared with, forgiven person who brings nothing of his own righteousness and counts only on the ladder, the gate, the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ for his salvation very much the way we do. In fact, I would say exactly the way we do. We have such an advantage over Jacob. As Hebrews says, he was only greeting these things from afar. But we've come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is. So we always come to a point in our time together on Sundays where we see God's word proclaiming these eternal, magnificent truths over us, saying things that bring such comfort and encouragement to us that build us up and, and tell us, trust Jesus, he's worthy of your trust. But then we're always going to come to a point where we're going to go, what do we do now? What do we do now? So that the, the months and, and years that have led us up to this point where we're hearing these words, that aren't my opinions, but they're just the word of God revealed to us. That we would see ourselves being led up to this point and whatever made us what we are right now, for good or for bad, we have to see as the providence of God leading us. We have to see ourselves being led by God. And now here in this room, and there are things that have characterized us in the past that God would say, if you believed me like I'm worthy of being believed, if you trusted me the way I'm worthy of being trust, you could start stepping forward you could start walking out of some of those things. You could start walking into better things. You could start walking into deeper security, deeper peace, deeper joy. And it's, it's not you creating it. It's you realizing the sufficiency of God to create it inside of you. That we would be submissive to this truth. That we would love it, embrace it, ask for it to become more and more our own personal reality. God, I know I've been living this way and I know it's because I don't trust you the way you're worthy of being trusted. So please make me trust you the way you're worthy of being trusted. God, I know that I live this way because I'm seeking to exalt myself, but now I see you. I see you exalted on high, a ladder an eternal king with eternal dominion, loving me, saving me, embracing me. Lord, please make that change me. These are our 
prayers. These have to be our desires moving away from every time we encounter God in his word and by his spirit. What is it that God is worthy of? And what is it that he needs to do in me so that he would receive it with a whole heart from me? Faith, trust, belief. I would never stand here and tell you that your goal or your objective after coming together and worshiping and hearing God's word is that you have to start getting really busy transforming yourself. You have no power to do that. For you to believe you could do that would be just foolishness and would be heresy and would be so prideful. But what I will say to you, by God's grace, every time I stand in front of you, is that you desperately need God to do some things in your life. And if you're seeking him and humbling yourself before him, this kind of grace-giving son of man ladder you'll find is just like placed on top of your heart. Heaven crashing into you. Jesus encountering you in such a powerful way that you cannot help but speak about the things you've seen and heard. That you cannot help but be transformed. You cannot help but worship him and love him and follow him and devote yourself to him failingly, imperfectly, because he's not done with you yet, but that you'd be caught up more and more into what God is doing and what he's worthy of. This is what I plead with you about, to be about what God is about, your transformation, his glory. This Jesus is all sufficient and all worthy, and the Bible's been talking about him since the beginning because people have always needed him And we need him now, so let's turn to him and pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.